Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts here tonight at the Real Science Exchange. And we're here tonight with two well-known university uh, professors to help us walk through the history of the transition cow management. And they'll then help us debunk some of the dogma that's developed over the years. I'd first like to introduce uh, Dr. Lance Bumgarner. State University. Lance, you're now what we call an expert here at the pub. Uh, I guess this is about your third or fourth time. Welcome back. Thanks for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, Lance, I've got to ask, what's in your glass tonight? Well, there's three things I wanted to highlight. Um, I've, I've stumbled upon two new bourbons. Um, one is called Borders Bourbon, and it's made by the 45th Parallel Distillery in Wisconsin, and it is a very tasty adult beverage. And then I've also recently come upon a rabbit hole bourbon. I don't know if you guys have had that one or not, but it's good. Right? It's good. But what I particularly want to highlight is, is actually a gin. Now, in all transparency, the distillery is owned by my family, my some, some, a cousin of mine, but um, they make a fantastic gin out of, it's called Ida Graves Distillery. It's a, it's a gin that, has some um, some unique flavors to it, and so that's what I'm drinking at the moment. It's that's awesome. That's awesome. I, I've taken notes there, Lance. Uh, I'm going to have to find those. I've been in a yeah. rut lately. Yeah. So, yep. uh, Lance, I see you've brought a guest with you tonight. Would you mind introducing him real quick for us? Yeah, you may not know him. <laughs> that's a joke because he's this is a very well known. Well known. He's an icon. An icon. The father of of an area. Dr. Jim Drakeley. Jim, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Jim Drakeley from the University of Illinois. Uh, I realized that I've been here for 34 years, which is um, amazing. Um, couldn't find a better job, I guess. So <laughs> happy to be here with, with everyone, and, and uh, it's a great chance to have a, a good conversation. Looking forward to it. What are you drinking, Jim? So I I'm, I'm uh, was struggling to choose between a gin and tonic, which I enjoy from time to time, and a, a good French white wine, which is kind of my go-to. So I've got a, a glass of Sancerre in front of me. So it goes uh, nice and crisp and just goes down real smooth on a nice hot evening like this. Excellent. And I can't forget my trusty co-host, Dr. Ken Sanderson. Uh, Ken, thank you for joining me here once again as my co-host. Uh, do you have anything special in your glass tonight? Hi, Scott. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I, I was just saying to the guys before we went uh, live here that for me, it's a real treat to have both Jim and Lance on the same call. They're, as you said, icons in the transition cow field and people I've watched and followed for years. So. And in my glass, Scott, I don't vary very much. I stick with Molson Canadian. <laughs> and uh, I stay right with that as the beverage of choice. All right. Thank you for that, Ken. Sure. Uh, as we cuss and discuss the best practices and research on transition cow management, let's first raise our glasses uh, uh, to a quick nod to the dairy industry and uh, to the, the great conversation to come. Cheers, fellas. You know what? 
I, I actually forgot to tell you what I'm drinking tonight. I'm, I'm drinking my forever bourbon. And, and so what that is, um, I have, I have a, an old Woodford's bottle. And every time I get about a, a fourth of a, a, a bottle left, I'll pour it into that bottle. So it's a mixture of, of everything. And, and, and the reason I'm drinking that tonight is I'm out of everything else. So Lance, I'll be, uh, I'll be ordering some of that Borders bourbon and, and rabbit you know. hole if I can find it. So, yeah. You know, one other thing I want to point out real quick is that we've done some redecorating here at the uh, Real Science Exchange. We have a new sign. I don't know if you see that behind me. Oh, so nice. we've got a, yeah. So I unveiled it for the first time here uh, tonight at the Real Science Exchange. So, um, Lance, I'm going to jump right into it. Uh, you presented back in January during the Real Science Lecture Series, and we came up with the title. Uh, or actually you did, uh, who let the dogma out of the transition cow management? Let's dive into that a little bit further and explain uh, what we mean about dogma and how did that come about and what does it mean as we get started uh, with this conversation? Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Yeah, well, so yeah, the actual dogma part of that title, actually, I need to give credit to Stephen LeBlanc, a friend of mine from, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with on this podcast, but um, he kind of teased me about that title and I've kind of stuck to it ever since. So the dogma, I guess at least the way I understand it, and uh, is that during the transition period, the cow mobilizes adipose tissue, and as a consequence, you have an increase in non-certified fatty acids, and some of those non-certified fatty acids are converted into ketones. And we'll just stick on energy at first. And the thought process has been for a long time is that these two metabolites then are causing problems um, they essentially they're pathological and that they in essence reduce an animal's immune system or suppresses an animal's immune system and then this predisposes them to a variety of health disorders in the transition period and um, so we as an industry in academia has spent a lot of time and energy focused on trying to minimize the large swings in nephes and, and, and ketones with propane glycol, primarily propane glycol, but other strategies, pre-cabin strategies. So that's kind of the dogma on the energetic side. The other one is calcium. I guess we can get to that later. But uh, Jim, is that kind of did I wrap that up properly? Yeah, I think that's that's nicely stated in a brief way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just kind of curious, uh, Lance. I mean, maybe Jim can kind of take us back in history. Uh, and and how did we get to the point where these became kind of the prevailing uh, understanding? Well, I think, um, you know, it goes back um, a long time. There were some studies, you know, back in the, the 30s and 40s even. Um, and and um, studies by Bud Schultz at Wisconsin in the 60s. And it was noticed you know, that we had the ketones being produced and this was often associated with cows that were 
clinically questionable that they were they had a malaise they were depressed sometimes we had this abnormal nervous behavior which occurs only in in a, a small number of the cases so there was a, a syndrome obviously going on and and as time went on there were a number of epidemiological studies conducted and those showed very strong relationships between ketones and these other problems uh, other health problems and so there's there's associations and i know this is something that lance likes to beat on that there's a lot of associations but that's not necessarily causation and so it, it's it's all associated with all the nasty things that happen around calving and uh, the, the question then becomes, what is the root cause of, um, of, of what we see? And whether it's starting with this negative energy balance and the mobilization of body fat, or as Lance's research has shown, whether it's due to uh, inflammatory pressures and, and other um, involvement of the immune system. So I think that's kind of brings us up to where we are today. Is, is, that, is that true, Lance? Yeah, no, I think that's all uh, very accurate. Right? One of the things that we, we do and have done for a long time, and I'm just as guilty as, as anyone else, is when we take cows through the transition period, and you measure, you take blood samples, and you measure this and measure that, and then after a certain amount of time, you retrospectively classify them as either healthy or non-healthy or you know, poor fertility or, or not, or good producers, not producers, etc., and then this retrospective uh, classification, then you do the, then you do your analysis on that, right? Or alternatively, just simply do a correlation analysis between these nephysic ketones and some type of outcome. And, and oftentimes there is an association, I would say uh, frequently not very strong of an association. And then oftentimes there's not. That's one of the things that I think is important to the discussion is that the inconsistencies in the literature regarding this relationship with a negative outcome is part of the foundation, I guess, of the way we've been interpreting this association. One of the very first things that came to my mind was when I, when I went to the University of Arizona right out of graduate school in 2001, and um, this was shortly after Jim published his fantastic review and I think it was 99 the final frontier yeah. I think he gave it that it was just a it's the bible of transition cow biology um if you haven't read it you need to so I that was fresh in my mind um it was a very exciting area of biology dairy science and so when I got to Arizona and started talking to nutritionists and producers I was convinced that they would have they would have to have a, a ketosis problem Right. They're a very high production uh, state. In other words, milk per cow, very high. And they've got five months of pretty severe heat stress. If anyone should have a ketosis problem, it should be Arizona. And I started talking to nutritionists in the West and specifically the Southwest and dairy farmers. And they just it's just not existent. Right? There are large dairy farms in Arizona that haven't treated a cow in 30 years. And. And that struck me, right? I'm like, if how strong should this dog be if we have, you know, an entire region where they don't have a ketosis problem? They still have high ketones, by the way. These cows still have relatively high ketones and high nephes. They mobilize adipose tissue. 
or just the dairy producers and nutritionists just aren't focused on it as a problem. So that was one of the first, really the germ of the idea. Like, remember um, in human nutrition, they call it the French paradox where eating too much fat and saturated fat in particular is supposed to cause heart disease and cancer. But of course, there's a whole Mediterranean population that don't have that. That association doesn't, that association or relationship doesn't connect. So they call it the French paradox. Well, maybe we should have an Arizona or a Southwest paradox, right? Where these cows aren't, they're not getting diagnosed with clinical ketosis. Um, and so that was always in the back of my mind for a long time, for like 20 years. You know, Lance, one of the things you talked about is uh, how you measure what a successful transition is. And, and it was quite simple uh, to, to me. Could you expound on that for the audience? Yeah. Essentially, the foundation of our thinking has been for a long time that the best indicators of overall health is productivity. Milk yield in this particular case, right? Um, so the, a healthy cow will, will produce a lot of milk and on a healthy cow won't. So, um, you know, I don't think you need to have a PhD or a DVM to, to recognize a healthy cow. Our, our ancestors did this really well. I hear this still often, right? This, I think it's an antiquated view that high productivity is stressful. Well, if we all agree that stress reduces milk yield, like everyone I think on this podcast probably really does. Um, if stress reduces milk yield, well, then how could high production be stressful, right? The, the two just, it's kind of an oxymoron. And the other foundation of our thinking is that Mother Nature is rarely wrong. And she doesn't make mistakes. So the fact that you have essentially all female animals mobilizing tissue after they give birth to support lactation, um, I, 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 I don't see, you, you think of her, the most important time of her life, she gives birth and she's got to raise this young. You know, why would Mother Nature create a system where she mobilizes adipose tissue and skeletal muscle to do that but while simultaneously putting herself at risk and thus her offspring at risk, right? Yeah. And I guess that's kind of the foundation of our way of thinking. Yeah. Put that in context. It's interesting. Uh, Dr. Sanderson's been talking a lot uh, about this as well. Uh, in fact, he's written an article that'll be published in Progressive Dairyman coming up in a couple months. Uh, Ken, I, what's the title of that? Uh, wellness is, what is the title? <clears throat> yeah, uh, biomarker for wellness is milk yeah. production. Yeah, yeah, Love it. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Ken, Love would you it. mind talking, uh, talking to us just a bit about <clears throat> what, uh, you know, the thesis of your paper? Yeah, I think it follows Lance's and Jim's comments. Um, you know, I I recall uh, Dr. Bauman's kind of discussion years ago with respect to high milk production and this concept that somehow it's a it's a stressor or workload on the animal, and yet he went on to explain that uh, the biology, the physiology of these high producing cows doesn't really indicate that, uh, that they retain a normal heart rate, a normal respiratory rate. They're not athletes per se. And that the physiology that goes into uh, high milk production really isn't a, an athletic or work event. And as such, the, the obvious 
consequence of removing stressors from the cow's life, whether it was heat stress or poor stall design, almost inevitably they responded with more milk. And, and so that was a very good indication that we were helping them be in a state of wellness. So that's kind of the thrust behind the article. Yeah, Ken um, mentioned someone who also has a huge impact on the way I think, and that was Bauman, of course. And he, you know, he was coming at it with regards to somatotropin, utilizing somatotropin, and encountering this idea that somatotropin is causing stress and all that stuff, right? And um, essentially, what what our group has done is take a play out of his playbook, right, and apply it to the transition period. And uh, yeah, he's had a huge influence on the way people think about milk production and hyperactivity in particular. I, I'm curious, Lance, you mentioned Arizona and sort yeah. of how you got onto this um, concept and in five months of heat stress. And yeah. yet no one was, quote, diagnosing or at least not chasing a litany of, of ketosis in these herds. Yeah. And, and, and yet the heat stress, I'm curious how you dissociate that from the LPS conversation yeah. that you, yeah, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect in my disconnect. Opinion. No, I totally, I totally, um, I can totally see the disconnect as well. So the, the, the you know, in the Southwest in particular, Arizona in particular does a very good job of cooling cows. Uh, before Dennis Armstrong got to Arizona, they'd lose 30 pounds of milk during the, every day uh, during the summertime. And now they're down probably five to six pounds on, on good dairies. So it's not, the, it's not the amount of heat stress that we're typically dealing with on university when we're studying heat stress. You get the severe heat load, you get the leaky gut, you get the LPS, etc. cetera. Um, and of course, it's more of a they become acclimated to the heat stress, of course, um, at a adaptive to the time. So, but if there was an acute heat load, and the animal did get the leaky gut, then I think that you're gonna you're gonna have a clash of these two ideas, uh, or at least clashes of biology, where you have um, heavily immune activated animals going off feed at the same time the transition period and. That's when I think you would expect to see then this um, immune-activated phenotype. I, I guess, Jim, listening to this sort of um, trail of changing thought processes, wh where do you put the, um, the Goldilocks diet concept now in your thinking? And what, what does that, does any of this change your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Ken. And, and um, you know, a lot of the 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 rationale for developing that approach or using that approach does center on body fat mobilization and so on. But I, as I've learned more from Lance and and seen his data and from some others too, the the whole idea of the LPS story I think makes some sense. I I think. One thing that might tie it in to better success is 
just what Lance is saying about the Arizona industry. That's that's a high forage based uh, system, alfalfa based system. And there's not as much starch going into those cows. I think my my hypothesis is that we're we're having some differential effects in the rumen that um, that minimize the inflammatory pressures. And we're actually going to present a couple of papers this summer at Dairy Science um, with some data on that. That we we have evidence for a, a more inflammatory profile on a higher starch close-up diet than, than the, the Goldilocks type of diet. So I, I think it comes back and, and does tie in. Um, you know, I, I remember one thing that was very influential for me was, was the work of Giuseppe Bertoni and, and Arminio Trevisi from Italy. They were talking about cytokines and, and inflammatory issues back in the, in the late 1990s. And um, I remember having a conversation with somebody, I don't know if it was with Lance or somebody else, but sometime back in the early 2000s, probably the same time Lance was having his, his uh, uh, visions <laughs> um, um, uh, about whether there really was such a thing as ketosis as a disease or whether that, you know, when you have a, a clinical case of ketosis, is there an underlying subclinical perhaps inflammatory pressure that's causing the problem and and causing the cows to not eat as well and then you get into the spiral downward of of where um where things really do get out of balance and and i think that those are they, they all tie into the the same story that's developing i guess in in my opinion i, I don't know what lance thinks about that yeah. I think you're spot on, um, and that's a great shout out to Trevisi and his group uh, because they've just done a, a, a great job of characterizing this inflammatory response starting prior to calving and, of course, going into uh, early lactation. Um, and, and, and like you said, that started in their late 90s, and he really crystallized this whole area in the, in the early 2000s in the 2010s and stuff like that. But but to your credit, though, Jim, in your uh, foundation, your final frontier paper, you even have a couple comments in there about how the immune activation could be a, a critical component of the transition cow success. At that stage, we didn't know, right, uh, how much. Yeah. But you you uh, obviously were on, on top of it enough to know, hey, this is a potential area where there will be a lot of discoveries. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's the key here is that you have an immune activating event going on somewhere. The mammary gland, the uterus, the gut, maybe the lung. And um, if that immune activation event was going on during mid or late lactation, right, the animal, the mammary gland has TLR4 receptors, so does the hypothalamus. And so the animal just kind of gives up, right? The, the mammary gland uh, stops making milk or at least you have a marked reduction in milk yield. She also stops eating, but because of the reduction in milk yield, you don't have this clash of met metabolic adjustment that needs to occur. But if she has this immune activation event during the transition period, now she's got, she, you know, evolutionary pressure to, to make milk at the same time, she's going off feed uh, because of the immune activation. So now you have uh, an energetic conundrum for her. She's got to she's got to 
feeder her offspring, right? So the, the petal is through the metal on the mammary gland. She's not eating because the immune activation has caused her to go off feed. And what happens? Well, now she's got to pull, right? She's got to pull uh, adipose tissue, large quantities of it, uh, and create ketones. So now you have this, this girl, um, and she has high ketones, high nephes. Uh, she's gone off feed, and she has uh, suboptimal productivity and likely some type of health problem. Then, then you have her, the alternative. You have the girl who's not, she doesn't have a problem, right? She's healthy, but she's mobilizing adipose tissue, converting ketones because that's that's the way Mother Nature metabolically programmed her to make a lot of milk. So now you have these two cows in the fresh pen. One has high nephes, high ketones, and she's milking like a dog, or not milking up to her potential, but she's trying. She's trying. And then the other one is milking like a rock star, and she also has high nephes and ketones. So I think this is part of the confusion of the transition period and the confusion for a very long time is that you have metabolically two identical cows, but phenotypically two very different cows. I was just going to say that's that's one thing that maybe I, I, I take a bit of issue with Lance is the idea that that. Um, I mean, I understand from a from an adaptive standpoint, the ketone production is perfectly normal. It's it's a way to adapt. Yep. Uh, to, a, to an energy shortage or a glucose shortage. Yep. But I would argue that, that that is not normal, that that's not, not the optimal scenario for the cow, that the optimal scenario is like your Arizona situation where you've got cows that are cranking. They have, they have maybe a little higher ketones, but I don't think they're above these associative levels, you know, 1.2 millimolar and so on. And I think that, that the, the physiology, the metabolism is optimal when we've got cows that are digesting a lot of fiber, they're getting enough glucose, and they're not making ketones. And that the, the, the situation where they are making ketones is not optimal in terms of metabolism. And so, yeah, you can have cows that are milking great, but I would argue that would they be milking even a little better if they weren't yeah. in that scenario, right? And that's maybe where you get into some of the, the associative effects. Yeah. I, just, you know, anecdotally, I was in Minnesota in April with a nutritionist, and we visited four farms that were all averaging over 100 pounds a day of, you know, milk fat uh, higher than 4.0, protein over three threes, good reproduction, and they don't have ketosis. You know, they check, they monitor the cows after calving. And if, if they find one, they consider it an abnormal event. So, you know, I'm, I'm with you most of the way there, but I would yeah. argue that if we do, if we are seeing cows with high ketones, even if they're uh, clinically normal and, and doing well, that they could be doing a little better if something was tweaked a little bit. Totally agree with you. A couple points you mentioned. Uh, one is Minnesota. It turns out Jim and I are from essentially the same area. Uh, the second one, and I totally agree with you, right? Utilizing ketones comes at a metabolic dis uh, disadvantage, right? You urinate out ketones, you breathe out ketones. And of course, that's a loss of energy. Um, yeah, no, no, totally, I, I totally agree with you. What could they be doing? Even if they're making 120 pounds at the 14th day of lactation, what could they be doing if they're able to increase their feed intake enough quickly enough so they didn't have to make ketones. Right. 
I, and, and I would totally agree with you that. And another thing you said that I totally agree with is uh, ketone levels. What type of ketone levels could you get on just on high healthy high production? And I think you're spot on. It's, it's very unlikely to get ketones over two, two and a half uh, with just high production, right? If I'm just high production, they probably run 1.2, 1.5. Uh, 1.75 maybe, but if they're two and a half or over, you have an animal that's not eating. Very, very unlikely to be eating, right? right? So now we have two different, we've separated this out. Now we have a healthy ketosis or an, on, on a cow that's not eating. So how do we use this knowledge to manage a herd, Lance? So at, at what point is optimal? And, and oh, That's a great question, Scott. And from a management perspective, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure large changes need needed to be implemented. Other than, you know, it wasn't very long ago, 10, 15 years ago, where a large dairies in the Midwest they'd lock up Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and every cow would get a urine stick test. And no matter what she was milking, or how she was eating, or how she was looking, if she got over, if she was over some type of some arbitrary threshold, she was going to be treated with propane glycol. And, you know, that, that's a cost, right? And there's potential risk of treating cows with propylene glycol. And probably the biggest economic one is just simply uh, dedicating manpower Labor. to doing that. You lock up an entire fresh pen three days a week. Um, there's, there's, so there's cost associated with this uh, on the producer, right? And I guess one, one of my tenets is, you know, let productivity be your guide, right? To just blindly take a blood or blood or, or, urine sample and measure ketones and decide to treat or not treat uh, based solely on that, I think is um, not necessary. I think one of the things that, that's important about those, uh, that, that strategy of the lockups, you know, the 10 days of, of daily lockups is that's time away from feed and rest. And I, you know, as we learn more about behavioral physiology and the, the requirements for for rest as well as access to feed, I think that's a real risk to the cows. One of the one of the beautiful things about this whole inflammatory story too is that I think it ties it into the the behavioral stressors because you get immune activation from from behavioral stressors like overcrowding and and uh, you know first lactation animals mixed with older herd mates and so on. I, I think it's a it's a great tie-in to these areas of cow comfort and cow management that that uh, really really are so important to the transition success. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It turns out, like Jim was saying, there's a variety of stressors where the metabolic and inflammatory uh, footprint is almost identical. And I don't think that, that can't be a, a coincidence, uh, or at least it's unlikely to be a coincidence. Uh, yeah. Most stressors we now know will cause some hyperpermeability of the intestine. You get the LPS, you get the immune activation. Um, and I think this in large part then also explains why these dairies that have, you know, that are managed properly with stress-free uh, management do so well. Yeah. But I think the, the million dollar question is still, if, if infl in, inflammation is the key, what do we do about it? How do we, how do we prevent yeah. it? Um, how do we treat it? Do we yep. treat it? 
Well, I think that's a great question. And I would go back and say inflammation is probably not the key. It is uh, immune activation causing the inflammation. Right. And then, of course, the inflammation is, a, is part of the, uh, of the malaise. Uh, so I think it's preventing the immune activation to begin with. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why cows can do so well in deserts like Saudi Arabia and Israel and Arizona. The environmental pathogen load is just so, so low, right? When you talk to a nutritionist out West, you know, they, they almost never have a, a milk fever problem, but when they do, it's almost always during the, the rainy season. We haven't talked about calcium that we've been, you know, but uh, I think some of the hypocalcemia is also so, uh, caused by immune activation. So when their when their environmental pathogen load goes up because it's raining and the dry lots get sloppy, but then you're going to have a few cases of um, milk fever. Gentlemen, one of the things I, you know, you're talking about inflammation uh, and, and there can be multiple sources of the inflammation or the immune activation. You know, I heard Lance, you say mammary, gut, lung, Jim, you said behavioral. How do you, how do you go about detecting the source of your, your uh, inflammation or the immune stimulation? We don't have any good diagnostics at this point that are, that are uh, field ready, I would say. But I think it's a, you know, we, we all, I think, know good management when we see it. It's kind of hard to define it or, or you know, spell out what that means. But you know it when you see it. And it's, it's all the little things that lead to cows that are more comfortable and under or subject to fewer stressors. And I think Lance's example there of the, the desert is a, a good one. And you just see it on these high producing cows or high producing herds that, you know, the cows are, are clean and, and healthy and happy and they're lying down when they're not eating and um, they're, they've figured out how to make group changes and movements that are, are minimally disruptive to the cows. You have the, the whole nutritional component, which is, is uh, important, but probably not any more important than all these other non-nutritional things in the cow's environment. So... I think those are things that, that a lot of us have been preaching for years, and I, I think it ties into this explanatory um, phenomenon really, really well now. It's interesting um, <clears throat> listening to you guys talk about Arizona and, and the uh, Goldilocks diet, and I have this question about anti-inflammatory diets. and and maybe, you know, because we did see good success, Jim, with with the Goldilocks approach, right? I mean, having that higher fiber, lower energy density diet, did it cost us some milk? Maybe. But, but it also might have been uh, prescriptive in that it probably was an anti-inflammatory diet. You mentioned that the high forage content of the Western diets and, and certainly the lack of the higher forage content in some of our more Eastern diets might have precipitated unknowingly uh, much more of a gut challenge to these cows and precipitated uh, some of the LPS 
absorption that we might associate with what Lance is describing. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Again, we have some some limited evidence that that those diets may be more anti-inflammatory than than a higher grain or higher corn silage diet. It would be interesting to make some closer evaluation of LPS, you know, if we could do that based on the style of diet and and have a, a better understanding as one of the management practices. We may have been doing the right thing for the wrong reasons <laughs> yeah. in the context of, of the uh, higher fiber prefresh. Yeah. But I, I do think, uh, Ken, that there's space and opportunities for some dietary uh, anti-inflammatory uh, uh, target molecules. You know, and we're all familiar with Barry's work with um, the, the aspirin, right? But so I think there's that's coming, and and the dietary anti-inflammatories I assume are going to be working within the gut, probably the distal part of the small intestine, most of the large intestine, and minimizing inflammation or immune activation stemming from that segment of the GI tract. Um, so I think there's going to be opportunities for nutritionists to um, to take advantage of that. Hopefully soon, right? It's a it's an area where I think a lot of companies right now are chasing. No, I'm just going to ask Lance. What he thought was the bigger issue: a hindgut or rumen? Well, that's a great question. Um, three years ago, I would have said hindgut for sure. And one of my PhD students, Megan Abeda. Um, who's now a practicing nutritionist in Wisconsin, we, we used rumen fistulated cattle to isolate hindgut acidosis. We were infusing, abomasally infusing cornstarch to cause hindgut acidosis, but not rumen acidosis. And we were really unsuccessful. We have four papers, I think five papers now, that are just recently out in Journal of Dairy Science where we were unsuccessful to create the negative phenotype. In other words, we got the we got the hind gut acidosis, but we weren't getting any negative outcomes. Hmm. Off feed, reduced milk, fever, et cetera, inflammation. Um, so then she she developed a, I think a really creative experiment, a little bit biased, but uh, where she caused rumen acidosis in one group of cows and took took that fluid, rumen acidotic fluid and abomasally infuse it into some healthy recipients. Mm. And in doing so, was able to recreate this negative phenotype. So I don't know, Jim, long story short, I think the hindgut is still a, a source of problems, uh, potential problems, and but it might not be pH driven. You know, there's a lot of potentially toxic molecules that are made in the rumen during rumen acidosis. And, and maybe we need to start giving those those toxic molecules more attention rather than just simply pH by itself. Yeah. I think the, the work from Canada, the, the Plaisiers group, you know, yes. showing the difference in alfalfa pellets versus yes. high corn is, is really informative there. I agree. You get, yeah, the, very... the acid, you get the acid production, but you don't get the, the inflammatory phenotype. Yeah. That was, that was an elegant 
series of experiments that Keyes has grouped in. Lance, we uh, you're discussing gut health, uh, and I had a question the other day. Uh, the use of butyrate uh, and monogastrics used, is, is there a role for butyrate in, in dairy cattle? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, especially probably post-ruminally, right? Small yeah. and large intestine. Um, I've seen some pretty convincing data that, that butyrate can be effective in, in improving gut health. Um, I don't know if that's just in the large intestine or if it's also portions of the small intestine. But yeah, I definitely think there's, there's, an op, there's space there. And the data I've seen is pretty impressive. Is butyrate utilized in the rumen, or, or is it destroyed by rumen microbes? Well, I assume they have to get it past the rumen because the rumen yeah. do a pretty good job of absorbing it, I, I would think. Um, That's yeah. interesting because, you um, you know, in, in high alfalfa rations, you tend to have higher uh, BHBA in cows that are presumably healthy. So, yeah. I mean, we know that that um, you tend to have higher butyrate. We seem to have fewer problems in, in Arizona, for example, with high alfalfa diets. It, maybe it's maybe that butyrate is having an effect on the gut. Yeah, yeah. And, and another point that you you're making too, Jim, is I th I think the GI tract doesn't get enough credit as being a source of circulating BHBs, and in particular the large intestine. Yeah. Uh, like I said, Megan's got some really nice data showing uh, a, a fairly significant increase in circulating BHBs that had to have stemmed from the large intestine. I used to think uh, alfalfa, there's something magical about alfalfa because it's utilized so much in Arizona and the West, like you, like you said, Jim. Then I did run across some, some producers that don't use any alfalfa, uh, but also haven't treated a ketotic cow for years. So I don't know. Um, I, I think you're right, though, about the high forage, not as much starch. Lance, you had some discussions during your webinar about um, milk fever. Just wondered if there was uh, mm -hmm. some things there you'd like to yeah. share with us on the podcast. Yeah. yeah, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about calcium. And I'm certainly not a, uh, a calcium expert by, by any means, but we stumbled upon calcium um, by accident. A couple of students of mine, Sarah Kavidra and Aaron Horst, we're doing a uh, LPS challenge with cows. This is probably 2014. And I'm in my office and a cow goes and they give LPS and the cow goes down, physically goes down. So they call me and I run out there and walk into the pen. It's a cow that's 200 days of milk and her, she's recumbent, right? And if you didn't know about her, you'd like, this cow has milk fever. She, she looks like she has milk fever. And um, so we gave her some calcium and you know, she got better. So then we started looking into this idea that immune activation could contribute to hypocalcemia. And it turns out this has been known for a long time. Like over 150 years, we've known that um, like mastitis, for example, was uh, contributed to, to milk fever. And um, so immune activation Acute immune activation causes hypocalcemia in almost every in every species that has been looked at from what I from what I know, uh, including humans. So, 
I guess what, what our thought process is, is if every cow is mildly, even overtly healthy cows have some level of immune activation going on in the transition period. Uh, and we know that immune activation causes hypocalcemia. I think it makes sense then to at least hypothesize that some of this subclinical hypocalcemia that's occurring in the transition period could be caused by immune activation. So that's the, uh, we, we've gone down this road and tried to calculate how much calcium is actually being pulled out of circulation during immune activation. And, and um, you know, certainly not the only reason why cows get subclinical hypocalcemia, right? The work that Ron Horst and Jesse Goff did is just fantastic. And um, all we're thinking is um, that maybe this immune activation has some, so, some, some role in this subclinical hypocalcemia. And, and of course, uh, the same thing goes back to the milk yield, right? We know that cows that have uh, a transient reduction in, in, hypo, in, in calcium, but then bounce back quickly, they go on to make a substantially more amount of milk than the cows that did not become subclinically hypocalcemic. So again, if, if subclinical hypocalcemia is presumed to be high, uh, pathological, it doesn't make sense to me that they would go on to make a substantial amount of more milk than the ones that didn't become uh, subclinically hypocalcemic. And Jess McCart's work also showed that cows that, that had subclinical hypocalcemia and were slow to recover were the ones that got into bad, uh, bad productive and reproductive uh, function later. So that fits with the immune activation as well, that you've got a, a process going on there that, that is um, counter to high productivity and, and health. I'm, I'm always um, curious about the influence of genetic merit in production. And in this case, how it might tie into the insulin refractory nature of these higher producing cows. I, I don't know if I'm using the right term, but how how do you connect the dots for animals that that have higher genetic merit for production and the link to insulin and and um, how that might be influencing their background so whether or not that's tied to how they might exhibit or use ketones or um, even NEFA. Yeah, I think that uh, obviously as we genetically select for high milk production, we're selecting for all these metabolic processes that, that are going to be able to fuel high milk production and Perhaps part of that is enhanced ability to use ketones or, or you know, that, that kind of idea. Um, kind of the, the big tenet of high milk production is that you've got um, a time of lower insulin and low insulin sensitivity and high growth hormone uh, driving lactation. So, I mean, those, those are all tied up with genetic selection, I'm sure. Um, you know, enable to enable cow to, to be able to uh, produce large amounts of milk. We know that those adaptations are are part of the genetics of a high producing cow. I'm dragging us back to the um, ability to predict the um, 
likelihood that that certain animals will have more problems and and potentially have you know lower production as a result of it mm -hmm. and and trying to understand if we can look at anything from a genetic perspective that might tip us off that this population of animals is more or less likely to be in difficulty and what that would look like. So there was a whole litany of work done some years ago looking at IGF-1 receptor populations on the surface of the liver. And I think it was Dale and Matt Lucy looked at this. And I'm, I don't recall all that information, but certainly there's a feedback loop to the anterior pituitary, which was connected to insulin and the and the refractory nature but i i don't know if if this has played into some of your work and thinking yeah yep so you're totally spot on ron and steven butler also did a lot of that igf stuff uh insulin receptor so two things regarding what you just mentioned ken uh we know higher producing cows have large have increased circulating concentration somatotropin and higher producing cows have much lower insulin concentrations. And so this is a great paper by the heart, uh, heart in the early 80s, looking at insulin concentrations throughout the lactation cycle and that high productivity, high producing cows had very low concentrations of insulin and low producing cows had higher concentrations of insulin. And there's a variety of, and then that's been shown now multiple times, right? That, Insulin concentrations are inversely related, and insulin activity are inversely related to milk production. Insulin's not a, a friend of productivity, uh, at least milk production. And as it turns out, immune activation also increases insulin, by the way. It acutely increases insulin uh, to the point where you can get a, a hundredfold increase in circulating insulin if you cause a cow to be sick or a pig, or it doesn't matter what. Um, so part of that, nat, that genetic selection for increase in milk yield is, is mediated by both increase in somatotropin and a decrease in insulin action, insulin action. And I'm sure IGF-1 is involved in that as well. But how that ties into this immune activated phenotype in the transition period, that's a great question. I don't have a good answer for you. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, some of the, the new genomic selection indices that are looking at health, I think that might be getting at or, or could maybe get at some of that question that the cows that are less susceptible to uh, inflammatory type disorders like metritis or mastitis, you know, that they may have that, that genotype that is somehow less immune responsive or, or, or uh, more immune competent, or I'm not sure what the, the right terminology would be. But it would be great to, to, to what Ken was talking about. If you could identify a young heifer, and she's, you know, this one's going to be hypersensitive immune responding, and this one over here is going to be more tolerant to the immune response, you, that might be play into your decision making on who you get rid of and who you keep. Right? So if you could identify those calves early. You know, what, 
what I realize is that the more we learn, the more we have to go back to the basic fundamentals, which is kind of where Lance started us, which is, you know, look at the cow and, and, and the, I'll call it the art of what we do is to recognize that all of these uh, blood metabolites are not nearly as effective as your ability to just reconcile them to what the cow is telling you, which is if, if she's eating well and milking well, the metabolites are somewhat secondary to interpreting the picture. I think where we've gone astray is that we have overcommitted ourselves to chasing some of these metabolite profiles. But at the same time, there was and still is a reason to try and be ahead of, I'll call it a breakdown, and, and have some kind of insight as to what's coming. And I think the more I listen to this, the, the more I'm not sure we have that yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well said. Lance, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm out of bourbon. That means you're, it you're is now last call. <laughs> That's last call. Yeah, so I'll ask you guys, you know, um, if a listener uh, today goes away with uh, one thing to do based on the conversation today, what would that be? And uh, Ken, anything to add to what you just said? I'd love to hear what Jim and Lance are thinking. We should be doing next. What's next? Jim, can we start with you? Tonight's last call question is brought to you by Niasure Precision Release Niacin. Niacin is a proven vasodilator for heat stress reduction and a powerful antilipolytic agent for lowering high blood NEFA in transition cows. Protected with Balchem's proprietary encapsulation technology, you can be sure it is being delivered where and when your cows need it. Learn more at balchem.com slash Niasure. I think the... Um... The anti-immune activation um, idea is a, a key one there that, you know, looking more at what is, what events are causing immune activation um, uh, and how to prevent that. You know, how can we, how can we dampen the, the unnecessary or harmful activation and still allow the cow to have, you know, good re- disease resistance and so on. I, th- I think those are our areas and the the frontier here that need to be fleshed out by Lance. (laughs) (laughs) That that might take a long time. Um, uh, I, I, I think, you know, from a, from whoever's listening to this, a takeaway is if you're a producer or veterinarian, um, one of the things I think is important is when you get to a farm and you have a sick cow, you know, if it's hypocalcemia or if it's hyperketonemia, um, I think those are symptoms of an issue. So, of course, it's easy just to treat and you're out, right? You in, get propylene glycol, you give IV glucose, you give a bolus, you give a IV calcium, whatever, and then now you're on your next to your next farmer. And I think um, what really needs to take place is a full examination of identifying where this immune activation is coming from. Now, if she's down and you can't get a milk sample from her, I know that's that's tough, but um, yeah, just showing up at a farm, treating really quickly and getting on to your next client 
is, is not doing that, that particular producer any favors. Um, from a scientist perspective on where to go next, yeah, I, I agree with Jim. We need to be able to, one, um, identify where this immune activation is coming from. And, um, you know, it's like I said, I, if I had to rank my likely culprits, it's probably the, the uterus, then it's probably the mammary gland, and then it's probably the gut, and then it's probably the lung. Obviously, these are all epitheliums, right? Um, so identifying where that, that immune activation is coming from I think is, is important in order to develop strategies to, to mitigate some of these things. Thank you very much for that, Lance. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed your webinar that you gave back in January, uh, but I enjoyed this podcast even more. Uh, I, I would encourage anybody that's not seen that webinar yet to go listen to that. Uh, I think I told Lance today, I think I could get an advanced degree by listening to that thing. <laughs> uh, just, just a lot of good information in there. And that was back in January of this year. So it Highly encourage you to uh, go listen to that. So thank you for that, Lance. And, and Jim, thank you for joining us. Uh, you've been a great guest. I appreciate uh, uh, your knowledge. Uh, and looking forward to a webinar we've got scheduled with you coming up as well. So uh, that's right. Be, yep. So uh, the audience be looking forward to that. And Ken, as always, uh, appreciate having you. Yeah, you helped me out a lot, and uh, I appreciate you. So. And to our loyal listeners, I want to thank you for coming along and spending some time with us once again here this evening. I hope you learned something. I hope you had some fun. And I hope to see you next time here at the Real Science Exchange where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of Webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars.